you think the only winner of Ukraine and Russia war is China? Oh, of course. Think about it. We are pouring our resources, our weapons, our money into Ukraine. Meanwhile, China, who is also taking resources from the U.S., is pouring those resources into Russia. So the U.S. is spending money on the Ukraine side and they're spending money on the Russian side. So whether it's Ukraine or Russia, it's American money. What do you think? Who is stronger now, Karen? Is it China? Is it the United States? Yeah, clear, clearly China's stronger. Who are you, Robert Spaltling? Uh, who am I? I'm uh, an American that uh, works on critical infrastructure. Uh, spent my career in the Air Force and retired about five years ago to move to the private sector. Okay, uh, so I'm, I'm very excited to talk with you. I have so many questions. My, my first question is about uh, how is it to advise the president of the United States on the China diplomacy? Well, <clears throat> in, in particular today, uh, I would think it's very difficult because um, the president has a lot of different people talking to him about China. A lot of people um, think, um, particularly business people or financial people, think that uh, China is very positive and the relationship is very important um, to the economy of the United States. Um, but uh, if you're thinking about national security or foreign policy, there are challenges that um, that affect the interests of the United States. And so, you know, the president is hearing a lot of good things about China. And then you have to balance those good things with the challenges that uh, affect the interests of the American people and the survival of the republic. And so I think <clears throat> I think it's very difficult and certainly no different during the Trump administration, when I was, uh, you know, in the military, but working in the White House, uh, trying to be a uh, somebody that's going counter to uh, the popular opinion about China, and certainly counter to what the business interests and the financial interests of the country are, are saying. So it's not easy, let's put it that way. So how it looks, you are getting in a room and you're saying, okay, let's talk about China. And that's, that's the conversation. <laughs> how, how does it work in real life? Because I see a lot of movies. I can't imagine movies, but is it like the movies? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, so anything um, that involves uh, foreign policy or national security policy in the United States uh, involves a process that you go through to, to get to a, a policy recommendation that the president may make a decision on. Uh, <clears throat> there are three levels of um, you know, policy making committees that uh, talk about and think about and vet uh, the various ideas and policy uh, recommendations. It starts with what's called the Interagency Policy Coordination Committee, or sometimes the Policy Coordination Committee. And uh, that is at the, um, in terms of the government, the federal government, the assistant secretary level. 
So a senior director, uh, and I was a senior director at the National Security Council, convenes a meeting. Sometimes there is a question, what should we do, uh, for example, about China and the islands in the South China Sea? What should be the response that the United States uh, should take with regard to that? And so generally what happens is the senior director at the National Security Council assigned the responsibility to um, to uh, get an answer to that question would send a message out to the federal government to the various agencies and, and uh, all this is is all this in in secret right yes it's it's typically done um, it's not a public uh, it's not a public forum it's done uh, you know in in government channels. And so they'll send out, typically it, it is a classified uh, request to have a meeting on this topic. These are the these are who's going to be involved, State Department, Defense Department, Commerce Department, Treasury, FBI, um, the intelligence community. Though, so, you know, what the topic is, what um, the questions asked uh, and, and who's going to be involved. And then um, each of the departments will send a representative. You know, in the Department of Defense, there's two, typically two participants. There's a Secretary of Defense's um, representative, and then there's the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs representative. And then each of the other departments send a single representative. And then they, uh, the Senior Director convenes the meeting They ask the question, they get the feedback. Typically, it starts with an intelligence briefing. Uh, then the State Department usually goes next and talks about the foreign policy issue involved. And, um, and then once the meeting's over, there is some uh, requirements or due outs by the different assistant secretaries. They will go back. Uh, they will talk to, you know, in the case of DOD, they'll talk to the Secretary of Defense, they'll talk to the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs. The next meeting will be at a higher level. It's called the Deputies uh, Meeting. That will be the Deputy Secretaries of the various uh, responsible agencies. And, you know, assuming everything moves forward in terms of the recommendation, the next meeting will be a The higher the principals meeting, this is the cabinet secretaries. The meeting is shared by the national security advisor. And then uh, if it gets to a policy recommendation to the president, then it's the cabinet secretaries and the president, and they make a decision. That decision then gets um, made into an executive or order, typically, presidential order, and then that becomes policy. So It's a long process that can take many months, can take years, depending on what the issue is. So it's not like <clears throat> I have seen um, policy decisions made very quickly. Um, things like, you know, what are we going to tell China about building islands in the South China Sea? Doesn't involve the president. Maybe it's the secretary of state. These can happen very quickly. But if it's a substantial policy position, For the federal government, then it can take months or years to get through this process. Wow. And there is hundreds of people involved for one decision, as I understand. Right. Do because you... each department agency has uh, um, people that are responsible for coming up the an answer for the State Department or the Defense Department. 
And then all of those get combined at the National Security Council. Do you think this process is effective? Um, I think for the most part, it's effective when there is not a, um, a significant change in the world environment. In other words, I think when um, uh, you have you know, certain periods of history where um, everybody knows kind of what are the main challenges, what are the main concerns, I think this is um, this. There can be periods of long periods of peace in the world where um, where perhaps there is no significant challenges. And I think this is what the United States faced after after the end of the Cold War. But when you're when you're uh, entering a period of profound change or disruption or maybe a, a black swan event where something happens that is totally unexpected. This is really where I think it becomes very, very difficult because bureaucracies don't like change. They don't like disruption. They don't like, you know, admitting that they don't really understand the world or understand how the world is affecting them. And so uh, any bureaucracy is going to have a very, very difficult time adjusting to disruption. Uh Another question that I was thinking, do you think that because you've been in those meetings, you think the quality of the people are like we're talking about, you think is good, is maybe questioned, or do you think this is the best people of the United States and this is the people that need to be in those meetings? Well, I think, you know, particularly in, uh, in the United States, um, uh, certainly there's a vetting process for people that, Uh, are invited into the, those types of meetings or that are appointed to those types of positions. But I think that um, it is uh, generally based on the quality of people that are in government at any, any given time. I think what you see increasingly in the United States is that, um, you know, there's, there's much more talent in the private sector because there's a lot more money. And so, um, and so there, it, is, it is the case that just like in every organization, there are people that are very talented and there are people that are not so talented and they can both find themselves in positions of power at any time. They can be, uh, they can be in a corporation, they can be in government. So it's not the, necessarily the case that every single person that's making uh, or helping to attempt to make policy decisions on behalf of the United States is the best person uh, for that uh, job at, in the United States. I think that's the one thing that, I guess when you take a step back and you think about the world and how things work, it's not surprising that you wouldn't have the best people uh, at all times in those positions. But at the same time, I would I would I would think that the American people expects that the best people are there making and I would think that for any country they would think that the best people are making decisions but that's not really the case. It, you know, we all have um examples of where good people are are very talented people are um are participating in in a in a business or in the government but there's also not talented people. So I think it's a mix of uh, both talented and not talented. I would not say that every single person is the best in the country and the most suited to uh, making the decisions 
when you have to make policy decisions in, in the United States. Unfortunately, um, that is, is just the case. Um, you are specialized in China relationships. How did you learn about China as an American? And how did you understand China? Well, there's two, um, there's really two uh, parts to my, um, to the evolution of me uh, understanding uh, China. The first part was uh, getting to be a student. So I was a Air Force major, uh, about 10 years. Uh, I'd been in the Air Force at the time. I was sent to the Defense Language Institute to learn Chinese for a year. So by the time I went to Shanghai, I spoke pretty good Chinese. And then I went and lived in Shanghai for two years um, studied at Tongji University, uh, MBA classes in Chinese. So that was the courses I took. Um, I really liked the negotiation, traveled the country, got to really understand the Chinese people. So I would call that the first, um, the first part of my uh, career of understanding China. It's not the end because I had other opportunities to go to China during this period, after I, uh, I left those two years and came back to the United States, I had policy positions where I was working uh, with, um, you know, on U.S.-China policy at the Office of Secretary of Defense. So I was working on an uh, archive, an, a, an agreement to have access to the PLA, People's Liberation Army archives, um, for the missing, uh, the missing. Uh, dead from the first Korean War. We're still look or for the Korean War. We're still looking for uh, the remains of those people. So I worked on access to the PLA archives to be able to research um, where those where those uh, soldiers and airmen and and sailors and Marines were buried, so that we could bring them back home. Um, and so you know, this was still kind of my first really belief that China was really good. Uh, it was a good relationship for the United States. We had, um, it was very positive in that. Um, and then there's the second part of my uh, career where I worked for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, um, in particular worked on policy positions. Uh, and this is when the China, China was building the islands in the South China Sea. And I started to uh, understand better uh, China, the Chinese Communist Party, more from the government level, not the people. And then I began to realize that, you know, um, the the way that we had a relationship with China was creating problems for our own society and other, um, and other democracies. And uh, so this became the second part of my career where I really began to understand um, the Chinese Communist Party and the government uh, as separate from the people of China. And so, um, you know, this process, you know, I had uh, experts like me that lived in China, spoke Chinese, understood the government, had worked in the embassy, for example, uh, had worked on policy, and um, it became a process of understanding the, the Chinese Communist Party, how it acts, what it cares about, what's important to it, what it seeks to achieve in the world. And then becoming, uh, and then began to realize that, um, you know, the things that we think are important, the things that are in our own interests, are 180 degrees uh, opposite from what the what China and the Chinese Communist Party wants. And so this became the second part of my career, understanding the government. So 
people first, then government. And I think overall, I began to understand that, you know, as bad as um, the Soviet uh, system was, the Chinese Communist Party system was just as bad, but they had um, they had stu- studied the mistakes of the Soviet Union and embraced a lot of the strategies of the West to counter the Soviet Union. And because uh, the West had opened up after the end of the Cold War, had been able to take advantage of globalization and the Internet to begin to do some of the things that the Soviet Union wasn't allowed to do because they weren't uh, allowed to be part of the economy of the free world. So can you describe me the Chinese uh, party? You said 180 degrees against the United States uh, goals. So can you explain me what does that mean? Well, so certainly. So uh, where the United States seeks to um, have uh, free trade as a uh, and an open monetary system and, and the idea uh, around that um, is this idea that uh, of split specialization. You know, one country may be good at growing corn. Uh, another country may be good at making steel. And so therefore, you know, one country should grow corn, the other should grow steel, uh, create steel, and then they should trade. And then both countries will be uh, better off. This is the idea uh, around free trade. And so I think the United States believes in free trade and has promoted that uh, free trade system in, in many uh, instances to the, to the detriment of its own industries. So allowing other countries to come in and, and, and compete on a level playing field with American companies and in many cases driving those companies out of business, but believing that overall it benefits uh, the two countries to trade. And I think uh, when I say 180 degrees, the the Chinese Communist Party does not believe in free trade. They believe in um, dominating uh, markets. And in dominating markets, it's not about the profits uh, or um, competitors of companies. It is about the ability to control markets. And so that's just one example of there's a complete and fundamental ideological difference between Uh, what the United States believes in terms of markets and what the the Chinese Communist Party believes. Another is this. Go ahead. uh, So controlling a market, I'm not 100 percent sure if I understand what does that mean in 2023. So what it means is you want to dominate the market. Um, uh, A good example is a market for rare earth metals. Right. So, uh, you know. Uh, standard economics says that, you know, if, if you're going to be in a free trade environment, then you're um, and there's no government intervention, then there's going to be competition. And some countries will do well. Some countries won't do well. But by and large, there's going to be uh, a balance. Uh, to, today, China controls over 90 percent of the rare earth metal market. Why? because they made a deliberate determination that that was a strategic uh, requirement. What does that mean? Well, that means that they can say, if you don't agree with uh, something that we want, we can basically withhold the ability to have rare earth metals. So controlling a market means that you can use control of that market to control the, the geopolitics that you want. 
for example, another good one, pharmaceuticals. So China controls most of the um, most of the precursors for pharmaceuticals. That means they can begin to withhold pharmaceuticals from a given country. So controlling a market allows you to have power over other countries that need the the end results of that uh, of that productive capacity in order to uh, function. And so you can use that. This is how China has used was using their markets against Korea. They used it against Japan. They've used it against the United States. Lithuania is another good example where the, you know, un- controlling markets is more of a strategic um, requirement. It's not necessarily something that would be um, where a company would do it on behalf of profits. It's done uh, beyond just a profit seeking motive. It's also done to have power over those that uh, you have that need that um, whatever it is that product is. And create future leverage for negotiations from scarcity and all these things. Right. Another example is rule of law. Rule of law is something that um, liberal democracies believe in. In other words, every every citizen is equal under the law and the law is applied evenly um, to and sometimes, you know, the the the, the notion that the law is blind, you know, in other words, the the scales are balanced. You know, China does not believe in rule of law. Um, The Chinese Communist Party is the law. And so they will um, they will often uh, get people. They will arrest them. They'll keep them confined for several months. They'll decide what they want to do with them. Then they'll hand them over the judicial system and then they'll be tried and sentenced and put in jail or executed. There is no due process. There is no ability for these people to appeal their decision. It is basically a mandate. It's very much like you know a a, a, um, a monarchy where the king says you know off with his head, and there is nobody to appeal to because the king is a judge, jury, and executioner. And so, rule of law is another one that is completely uh, you know different you know between say a a a common or not a common but a um a a a democratic system and a um, autocratic system which is what china has so there's there's and you can go on and on about the the differences in ideology between what the chinese communist party believes and certainly the the america you know the the u.s constitutional republic represents while you were explaining all these things i was thinking that these things, let's say, might be morally wrong or I might disagree with what, let's say, China is doing. But maybe all these things give a lot of uh, leverage to China. For Like when you control all the people of the country and they're scared of you or whatever, maybe you tell them do that and the millions of people do it. And Or maybe when you are controlling geographically countries and they're scared of you, that you're going to be in a favorable position. So do you think the policies and the system that China uh, is using is more uh, strategic and better for the long term for, let's say, for positioning themselves against each other in the future? Well, I think that um, what we've seen typically, if you put if you make two systems independent, one system 
uh, is a system where people are allowed to um, thrive. They're allowed to uh, seek their own um, future. Uh, they are treated equally. Um, the, the government is actually serving the people as opposed to the people serving the government. I think when you have those two systems side by side with another system where the government is, uh, has full authority over the people and the people are more subjects, not really citizens, I think you've seen time and time and again over history that the, the former uh, does much better in terms of providing a much more productive and much more prosperous a much more successful, certainly uh, developing technology, innovation, much more, um, much better for people. And it's the way that people uh, generally um, thrive. I think what China realized was that uh, at the end of the Cold War, if the free societies were not going to restrict, you know, the authoritarian system's access to the technology, the talent, the capital of those free societies, that they could begin to um, take those resources, take the talent, take the capital, take the technology and bring it over and make themselves stronger. And at the same time, begin to influence um, how the population felt about the, a democracy or a republic, a constitutional republic, then I think they've been very successful at changing the outcome. So when they're apart, it's very clear that which system is better. When they're together, it is possible for the system that is much more top-down and autocratic to thrive because they are taking the resources from the free system. And slowly this system begins to go down and this system begins to dominate. And I think that's that's what the the, the Chinese Communist Party realized and I think um, very rightly so. It was smart. It was, uh, you know, I say all the time that they did the right thing, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, providing for their continued dominance. And if we're going to allow them to do it, then, of course, they should do it. <laughs> I have so many questions. It's, but so first of all, uh, how, how do we prevent them uh, from doing Git, that's one question. But I was while you were talking, I was uh, uh, thinking about. So, do you agree that in couple of years, or do you think what do you think? Who is stronger now currently? Is it China? Is it yeah, the clear, clearly China's stronger in this system. I think the only way that you survive, uh, if you're connected, you won't survive um, because the in order to protect itself. Um, this system is not competitive with this system. All the entities, all the gov all the uh, government, the, the the corporate sector, the financial sector, they all work towards one goal, to one common end. Uh, this one is all working independently, and so this one begins to uh, be dominant. And so, if they are connected, uh, this one cannot survive. And so, in order to protect itself, it tries to become like this one. It tries to become more top-down. It tries to become more authoritarian. It tries to align uh, the means of production and power so that it can compete. And, and so uh, in, in doing so, and able to be, to be effective at competing, when they're connected, they, they, they tend to become the same. And so because uh, a centralized system 
is when connected to a decentralized system becomes much more powerful. And so the decentralized system must become centralized in order to compete. The only way to preserve a decentralized system is to separate and allow the decentralized system to, to grow. And the centralized system, when it doesn't have the ability to latch on and take the, the talent, the technology, the capital of the free system, then it begins to it begins to sink. And we're starting to see China now begin to sink as they become more and more disconnected from the free world. So I think this is the, the, the only way is to separate the two and allow the free societies of the world to thrive, to provide you know, economic opportunity for their citizens and to let the the centralized systems, you know, fall into um, into disarray and an eventual collapse. I mean, this has happened time and time again, but in this case, they're connected. So that therefore China becomes more powerful because we are not a centralized system. We we cannot get uh, business, finance, uh, everything to work together to a common goal. So what? How do you identify? who is stronger now by gdp is it by what is the factor that we know who is stronger at what time no i i think i think today um if you want to look at who's stronger i think take a look at um a good example is russia's invasion of ukraine how many countries support um ukraine how many countries support russia and what you'll see is there's a lot more countries that are supporting Russia than are supporting Ukraine. There's a there's a few of the West very wealthy Western countries, but by and large, the emerging market economies are all on the side of China and Russia. Why is that? Well, it's because China has made a deliberate campaign to um, to basically use the Belt and Road Initiative and their economic um, strength to begin to you know create their own sphere of influence over those those economies. And so um, I think you know, when you look at power, it's comprehensive. It's not just economic. It's also geopolitical. It's financial. I think financially, uh, the United States is a basket case. Now, China's not doing so hot. But the thing that China has that the United States doesn't have is that they have a insulated financial system. They're, they don't have a currency that can be freely traded. Therefore, you don't have to worry about a collapse of the financial system because nobody can pull their money out of China. And so I think, you know, financially, the, 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 the Chinese, even though they have a lot of debt, how do you um, how do you make that debt? How do you call it if you're a, if you're a co- company uh, or a country that exists outside of China? You can't. The they the Chinese have made that con- currency not convertible. Um, so I think you know productivity wise, it's clear who makes the most steel in the world. You know who makes most of everything in the world. The Chinese do because they've made that a priority of owning the um, industrial base. You know a lot of people thought the United States was the most powerful country coming out of World War II because European industrial base was destroyed. And so United States had an intact industrial base. Today, who has the industrial base? China does. And so I think when you look at kind of economically, productivity-wise, financially, uh, certainly uh, geostrategically, who has the, the, the majority of countries on their side 
as an international institution. China has is dominant. Now, look at militarily. This is the one area where the United States has traditionally been dominant. China has a bigger navy. They have more rockets, more missiles. They have more weapons. They, um, they have you know, more people that are in the military. And it's not just low-tech stuff. They have the J-20. They have new aircraft carriers. They have you know, new hypersonic you know, maneuvering missiles and hypersonic or maneuvering ballistic missiles. So now they have high technology to, uh, to, to uh, couple with a lot of uh, people in the military. So, you know, militarily, economically, geostrategically, financially, I think you have to begin to say China is much more powerful in terms of its ability to get what it wants, what are its interests, and its ability to go out and get those interests in the international system than the United States is. Today, you know, the, um, the luster, the, the allure of America, the soft power, um, all came because of the economic opportunity, the productivity, um, the, the ability to, you know, for the citizens to thrive. All of those things have been undermined over the last 30 years. And so, you know, now when emerging market economies look to a country and they say, what country is doing good? What country is providing for its citizens? They look to China. And so I think these are the things that, you know, evidence that China is far more powerful in the world in terms of um, getting its interests met uh, than, than the United States, by far. By far, wow. I thought of them as equals, and I thought of the uh, United States being slightly better, and like I thought that China will overtake, uh, but you're saying no, it's, it's, it's different. So it's crazy. I, I, I wanted to ask you a question about the war uh, in Ukraine and Russia. You, you think the only winner of this war is China? Uh, of course. I mean, I think, uh, I think the, the, the war in Ukraine is the repeat of the Korean War. Same situation. You have uh, the North Koreans invade South Korea. They go back and forth, back and forth. A lot of people die. Um, pretty much nobody wins. Eventually, they have an armistice, and we're still there today. There's an armistice. There's no peace. I think the same thing's going to happen between Russia and Ukraine. Who suffers? The people of Ukraine, the people of Russia. Who benefits? The Chinese benefit. So, uh, but, but how much... You, you think this war made United States uh, uh, less strong, like and how it made it less strong? Well, Is I mean, think about it. We are we are pouring our resources, our weapons, our money into Ukraine. Meanwhile, um, China, who is t also taking resources from the U.S., is pouring those resources into Russia. So. The U.S. is spending money on the U Ukraine side and they're spending money on the Russian side. So, you know, whether it's Ukraine or Russia, it's 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 American money. One's going through China. One's going through Ukraine. All we're doing is spending money. And what happens? They, they go this way. They go that way. They're left to right. You know, they they are, um, you know, a lot of people die. A lot of, uh, you know, people are suffering. 
Um, but really what's happening is the U.S. is spending money on both sides of the conflict. So, of course, the United States is losing because um, as long as we have a relationship with China and China uses that relationship to support Russia and then we then we give money to Ukraine, we're basically paying for the war on both sides. Interesting. I have a question uh, that I'm dying to ask you is how a war in 2023 or 2025, this age that we live with China against the United States will look like? Is it like, let's say you can describe maybe militarily, like what that's going to be like, is it uh, how it will look like? Uh, have you watched the movie The Terminator? Uh, yes. Okay, so if they actually go to war, that's likely to be the result. The the the, the post-apocalyptic world of The Terminator. Um, so I, I hope that there's no war between the U.S. and China because they both have nuclear weapons. And so what might happen, I think the Chinese are certainly going to conquer Taiwan. They're going to bring it back into the fold. Um, and I don't think the United States is going to um, really be able to do much of anything. And if they do, it's, 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 it's nuclear war. So I think there's not a lot of good options here. Um, you know, now, what did the United States do with regard to the Soviet Union? They basically threatened them. They said, if you go into Western Europe, we are going to just completely destroy the Soviet Union. That's going to be our response. And that is the way that they were able to prevent the Soviet Union from invading Western Europe is just a, the risk of just having the entire society destroyed. Um, if the United States is not willing to do that over Taiwan, then I think China is going to take Taiwan. And, um, you know, the, the response from the United States may be to try to attempt to save as many people in Taiwan as possible to evacuate them from the island. But I don't think, at least I hope that we don't go to war with China or Russia for that matter, or any country that has nuclear weapons because uh, the implications, you know, North Korea doesn't have that many, but, you know, certainly a Russia or a China, that could end up in destruction of humanity. Are you afraid about the future? Yes, I'm afraid for representative uh, democracy. I'm, I'm afraid for the free world. I think that um, in particular, the Internet, um, as opposed to what we believed to be a general good for mankind, is, um, is particularly dangerous. And I think the ability to have access to somebody's data, their information, is um, is in a way a, a kind of slavery. And I think unless we can um, find a way to liberate um, mankind from the slavery of open data, then it's very easy to subjugate them using their data. And I think that's what's happening in both authoritarian systems and free systems. Um, I think in, unless we can get a handle on that, um, from a from a technology standpoint, but we are we are headed towards a world where corporations and governments control the actions of people, and people really don't have an alternative 
they don't have a, a way to um, to defend themselves in this kind of environment. Um, it's 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 been transformational, I think, since the invention of the internet uh, and the development of this type of technology to be able to understand people's intentions and then to turn around and use that technology to change their perceptions, change their behaviors, change their intentions in ways that are counter to their own interests and in ways a lot of times that is imperceptible to them. So I do think that, you know, I fear for um, for society in the way that I grew up before the Internet um, in, in really believing that um, mankind had the ability to uh, to remain free. I, I don't know that we we can actually maintain that going forward if we continue to have this world where um, you, your inability to have total control of your digital self um, is is somehow instantiated in technology. Uh, I'm not 100% sure what you mean by uh, controlling of the data. You mean the country, the government control the data of their people, or you mean other countries control the data of other countries and trying to manipulate? I, I think when, um, when your data is free for anybody to, um, to get, to aggregate, to control, because you give it away freely, uh, or it's easy to access. In other words, it's not protected by encryption. So now once I have data, if I know uh, where you go, who you talk to, um, what you do on a daily basis, I can see you, your facial inspections. I can see how your body moves. I can see how you interact with the different things. If I can collect all that data about you, then I can uh, understand you know, your emotional state, I can understand what you believe. And I can begin to then send you content that begins to change the way that you believe, or begins to manipulate the way that you believe. Um, this is how ByteDance works. This is how many of the social media platforms work. This is how Amazon or Alibaba works in terms of making you a better consumer. And so we created these tools to understand data and then turn around and using that understanding, begin to manipulate the emotions um, and, and the thinking of people. And, and this has been why Silicon Valley companies have become so economically powerful um, in, the, in, in the 21st century. But more importantly, now it's, it's moving into the social and cultural space where governments and, and corporations can begin to manipulate um, the behavior of individuals in this, when you think about that at a macro level, now you can begin to manipulate um, what they value. Do they value freedom? Maybe they're afraid of something. And so they don't value freedom. They, they want somebody to make them safe. This is, a, this is a classic way that you control somebody, um, you know, convince them that there's something that should, they should be afraid of. And then they should look to you and do the things that you want in order to be safe. And this is a society that we're beginning to see arise, not just in China, where they have total control of all the media and social media and, um, and education system, but in the West, where there is a consolidation of, of narrative power. And so now you begin to see people really no longer thinking for themselves, but expecting the government or some corporation to begin to 
provide, you know, the, the things that they need to survive. This is a thing that I find, um, you know, terrifying because, you know, we've, we've given up this idea of critical thinking um, and questioning, you know, the stuff that comes at us and saying, hey, you know, you know, it must be true. If the government's saying it or this corporation is saying it or this famous person is saying it, it must be true. And if they're all saying the same thing, well, then I, you know, I must listen to them because they're they're right. I must wear you know, masks. I must get a vaccine. I must, I must, you know, give up my business. I must close my business uh, and, and, and not feed my kids because it's, it's important for the entire society. These are the things that you start to see happen uh, when there is no ability to counter the, 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 the prevailing narrative. According to you, what do you think should be the role of a country? Uh, it should be to protect the social, cultural, and economic integrity of the people. It should be to enable the people to thrive. And, um, and I, you know, I think that's a really good question because I think our founding, uh, founding fathers really struggled with that, you know. And more importantly, they struggled with this idea of the, 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 the constant state of humanity is this one where um, they're constantly fighting oppression, and why are they fighting oppression? They're fighting oppression because power is corrupting. And any system, any social system, any political system, you know, the uh, whoever has power seeks to keep the power to themselves, doesn't want to share the power. And so they, we created this, you know, this, um, this power sharing system in the United States, the legislative branch, the executive branch, the judicial branch. None of them had uh, ultimate power. They all shared power and they all had control over different aspects of our lives. Um, but more importantly, because they had to share power, they couldn't become dominant over the people. So the people could maintain, uh, you know, so whatever um, rights were given to the government in order to protect the society, you know, create, uh, you know, a financial system, uh, create a, a military to protect um, to create a legal system for, to protect uh, the citizens, you know, whatever, whatever wasn't given to the government was kept by the citizens. And I think um, this is, you know, I, I think a very, you know, uh, smart way to think about the world and, and the way uh, human systems work. Uh, the problem is, you know, is that we created this thing called the Internet and it wasn't wasn't accounted for in the Constitution, certainly. And so understanding the power of data to, to manipulate people's um, lives in ways that are imperceptible to them is something that was not was not accounted for uh, in laws. And it still isn't, you know, the Europeans try to do GDPR, uh, but even GDPR is not successful at actually uh, protecting the citizens against this kind of, um, of, of the consolidation and misuse of data. So I think that you know the government really exists to enable the society to thrive. It, you do need discipline. You need uh, you can't have chaos. Um, other otherwise, people can't you know um, people can't thrive. And so you need to have you need to have a rule of law. You need to have a military. You need to have a financial system. You need to have markets markets that are competitive, not monopolistic. So you know, and that. You know, in the course of the United States, that's been over 240 plus years of constantly improving the system. I think what's happened is, you know, with these changes, these technological changes, the introduction of, you know, authoritarians through both globalization and the Internet, 
has uh, created kind of more a, a, res, a, a reversal of many of the um, benefits of the that that started really during the Enlightenment period, where where um, you know where logic and facts were um, were used at, to make decisions, as opposed to um, you know superstition. And I think we've been on this ever um, improving and progressive path to making uh, mankind better, um, better at so many things. And I think over the last 20 years, we've started to see a backslide, a reversal of that. And I think it is um, because of this inability to um, discern between fact and, and fiction because the the the, um, the internet has has um, corrupted this ability to 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 clearly understand the difference between what's true and what's not true. Interesting. Uh, yes, it's it, it's an interesting question. Like uh, maybe there is a lot of different government systems in the world, and it's like. Uh, I was curious to hear your take on what should be the role of the government. So it's very interesting. But uh, so do. But uh, the question now that I'm thinking after all the stuff that you said. So is United States destined for war with China, or you think no? Um. Well, I mean, I think it, it's important how you define war. If you define war in the classical sense. Um, I don't think so. If you define war in the sense that um, uh, war is more political in nature, we're already at war. We're, we're at war with our own uh, political system. We are, we're losing. We're losing the ideological battle. Um, I don't think, and I, I, I pray that we're not going to have a military conflict because that could be uh, devastating to humanity. But at the same time, I think uh, what's, what may suffer um, is that this idea where um, man uh, could reach his true potential um, by, by defeating the demons that lead to uh, this constant cycle of oppression, uh, I think that may be the thing that suffers. I think I think we are we are headed towards a world that is far more oppressive in terms of the ability for for humans to express themselves in the way they want, uh, as opposed to way, the way they're allowed to. And so um, we, I think we have to come to, to come to um, we, we have to basically recognize that this is happening, that, you know, our ability to express ourselves is what's being taken away. And and you start you start starting to see, um, you know, people as they arise through the system, as they as they as they're born and they grow, uh, they begin to self censor. They begin to modify their behavior. They begin to conform in ways that uh, is, um, I think, in the, in the end, will lead to uh, a very homogenous society. And a homogenous society doesn't innovate. It doesn't grow. It, it stagnates and, and becomes, you know, uh, it decays and dies eventually. And I think that's where we're headed if we don't, uh, if we don't um, begin to turn things around. So I have a bit of a personal question. Uh, like, what, what was your role exactly when you were in the military as in the Air Force General? Like, what you did exactly? Because... I understand what Air Force, Air Force is, but like, what does 
the general does? Uh, well, so for most of my career, I flew the B-2 bomber. Um, you know, at the end of my career, I was more focused on strategy, policy, you know, the, the you know, how to think about, um, you know, uh, how do we preserve uh, this constitutional republic in the face of these massive changes in technology, in business and finance? How do we how do we think about preserving the principles and values of our constitutional republic in a way that that is true to the ideals of America? And how, how do we maintain that uh, in the face of these things? These are the things that that, you know, towards the end of my career, I was much more focused on than flying airplanes. Um, when I was flying airplanes, it was about learning how to uh, defeat my enemies, to um, to, you know, oppose military force on a nation on behalf of, uh, you know, the nation to ensure that it, we could get some kind of political outcome. I think, you know, this is uh, my, I've had two, two careers, I guess you might say in the military. One was much more focused on the pointy end and the other was much more on the cerebral side. How do we think about strategy? How do we think about policy? How do we think about economics um, and, and, and military force? When should it be applied? I think one of the things that you find in the military today is that there's a lot of people that are really interested in how to uh, get better at breaking things or killing people. How do we be more efficient on the battlefield? But there's a lot less thinking about why are we killing people? Why are we breaking things? What outcomes are important? How do we preserve, you know, what is the role of the military? How does it seek to preserve what is good about the, the, the West, Western civilization? And the Western civilization is good because it began to moderate the oppressive nature of governments over, over people. And these are the things that I think, um, you know, uh, you know, I've tried to certainly towards the end of my career in the military and now tried to focus on is how do we preserve what we have uh, as opposed to, you know, breaking things or killing people that, that that's typically what the military is for. But um, in my case, I've tried to think a little bit broader. Uh, so, so, but you didn't give me on a day-to-day -day basis, let's say on your end of your career. So you were studying relationships, you were like motivating the people of the air force, like you were giving talks. How? Well, is, yeah, like yeah. I mean, so, so, I mean, I was part of the national security council. So when I was in the joint staff at the Pentagon, you know, I remember I said, you know, we would have these meetings. I was representing the chairman in these meetings. I was going back and I was coming up with the policy positions. I was working with my, uh, with, with the people that worked for me to come up with the policy positions of the chairman that he would recommend to the president. So, um, yeah, I was thinking more of on the lines of strategy and policy and diplomacy. I was a, uh, I was working with the Chinese uh, People's Liberation Army, so their representatives. I went to, you know, be the defense attache in Beijing. So much more strategy, policy, a diplomacy uh, in, the, in the end of my career, meeting with people, thinking about the challenges that we face and how we might um, come up with uh, options to deal with them. So did you, did you, did you fight in any battle or any war or any, anything uh, that was dangerous? So I deployed to Iraq. I was, uh, I was in charge of the, um, of the um, protection for 
the prime minister, the president, the speaker of parliament. Um, I was um, I was the uh, I was the head of this almost like kind of like the Secret Service, I guess you might say, in Iraq uh, during the Iraqi war. And then, um, you know, I was uh, in, in command of, uh, of the B2s uh, during the Liberian War, um, you know, the um, and also uh, we, you know, uh, I was uh, going to lead uh, the strike against Osama bin Laden when the president chose the seal. So these are the types of things that I participated in. Interesting. Uh, so, wow. So... Was it uh, very dangerous at the, and, and scary for you? And like how, or when you were there living all these things, how you were doing it for your country? What was your motivation? You were doing it because it was interesting. You, what was, uh, maybe you can uh, bring those memories and recall some of them. Well, I mean, certainly I, I've always been very patriotic. I, I, I believe in the United States. I believe in the Constitution. Um, so that was uh, something that motivated me. Um, I really wasn't, uh, I never really could say I was fearful. Uh, you always had your training and you always had um, your mission. So I uh, really, not, not a lot of time to be, um, to be fearful in many of the instances. Um, and, you know, the, I think the other thing is um, you had people around you that were good people and that you, you owe them uh, your um, the, your full um, dedication and and uh, you know it was that camaraderie I think so you know combination of patriotism combination of um, you know your training and and your professionalism and a combination of you know your uh, desire to um, to support your 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 partner that was uh, that was there with you so I think there's a lot of and then of course if you're in command the people that 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 were uh, under your command you owed a responsibility to them, to their families, to ensure that you did the best to make sure that they made it home safely. These are all things that, that you think about is, you know, it's a, it's a, um, it's a challenging life, but it's also a good life because you meet a lot of really, really um, incredible people and, um, and you do some very incredible things. And, um, and for the most part, you know, I think it was, it was, uh, I, I would do it again and I would do it, be, you know, for all the right reasons. Interesting. Did you be involved to any killing, any uh, other stuff that you can share with us, or not? Not really. You know, I I was involved in wars, but you know, I can't say that you know that 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 was uh, the major part of it. Okay. So do do you think the whole conflict in Iraq was uh, was uh, well used by the United States uh, government? Um, I can't say that, um, that, um, I mean, there's two, two, two ways to look at that. One is uh, you have to think about all the Americans that suffered and, 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 um, and put their, uh, life on the line. And I don't believe that they did that in vain. I don't think, uh, I, I would never say that, um, that their lives were wasted in doing that. I think there was a, there was a belief that we were doing good at the same time. I also recognize that the outcome um, maybe is probably not the best either for the Iraqi people or for the American people or for anybody else. So uh, somewhere in, in the middle is is where that answer lies. And I think that um, I think what I hope 
is we learn from every every time that we have a conflict. We learn, um, and and that we um, we take that learning uh, and that discernment, and that we um, at, at all times, in all cases, if we are going to apply force, um, military force, to achieve an outcome that that we've that we've thoroughly thought about um, the the people that will suffer as a result, and that we learn from it. Um, wars will happen and uh, and conflict happen. It is part of humanity, but to the extent that we can learn from that and make sure that, you know, for the, the maximum there's for the most part, if you think about it, in most cases, war can be avoided if, um, if you, uh, if you really work hard. And sometimes I think maybe we didn't work hard enough to avoid it. Um, there, uh, there's a lot of motivations for, for the why the, the the countries go to war, and I think you know, hopefully, as we move forward, you know, the tendency for that will will get less and less over time as we learn, you know, about the mistakes. Um, I think the farther you get away from war, um, certainly the farther we get away from Hiroshima and Nagasaki, I think the more that we are, the less we're frightened of using nuclear weapons. I think the, the the farther you get away from war, the 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 more it might might tend to glamorize it and makes it easier to to slip into. And I think we should avoid those pitfalls and avoid those dangers and and constantly strive to um, to try to avoid it to the maximum extent possible because uh, nobody wins. You know, in the end, it's 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 suffering. And I think uh, as I read a, a, a book uh, that. Uh, Actually, Elon Musk recommended on on his uh, on his Twitter about destined for war uh, with China. He said uh, the book is saying that the Chinese people have uh, are uh, are more in the long term view and on the defense side in comparison to, to the United States that they are more in the attack side. Do can you agree with that statement? Do you agree with that statement? I think that's that's that is um, that's generally um, I think I think of you know probably the way to think about it. Um, that being said, I think uh, I also think that uh, the Chinese. So when we think of China, uh, are we thinking about the Chinese people? Or are we thinking about the Chinese Communist Party? Um, I think that um, the Chinese Communist Party has its interests. It has its reasons for doing things. And I think those are um, oftentimes at odds with what the Chinese people may or may not want if they really had the opportunity to think about it. Um, so but I think generally, um, you know, in terms of, um, you know, how the, the role China has played in the world over the centuries, I think it's been far more as a um, as an agrarian society that didn't necessarily venture out and conquer um, in fact, were conquered many times, uh, you know, by many different um, countries, and um, and then eventually it ended up absorbing those those countries as part of the as part of what has become China. So, um, but I think the other thing about that book, um, this idea that um, that two uh, you know a rising power and a declining power will tend to fight. Um, I, I think that is, um, that, that's, it's, it's not really doing justice to, I think, um, humanity and mankind in history. I think it is, 
It's a um, it's a trivialization of mankind, um, and I don't think it's easy to, um, you know, to put all of all of um, you know the uh, all of uh, human history into this very kind of uh, you know um, very kind of black and white scenario like. You know, I think 12 out of 14 times you had a rising power and a dominant power that you're destined for war. I think um, I think there's there's all kinds of reasons why you lead why why two nations might go to war. I think one of the things that's different, uh, I think it is critically different, is the presence uh, of um, nuclear weapons and their impact on the decision of whether or not to go to war. So. Maybe we had twelve of the last fourteen. If you look at the uh, at, at at the um, at the uh, you know at history, and says this is what happened. But you know, in, in when we uh, detonated a nuclear weapon, I think the world changed that day, uh, and I think it's still changed. And I don't see anything that is going to um, is going to deal with that change. Uh, and I think so. In, in the case of the United States and China, the leaders of both countries have to recognize that. If we go to war, if we go to nuclear war, this is devastating for both societies, not just um, in terms of, you know, losing a battle or losing a war, losing uh, humanity. This is what what hangs in the balance. And so I think there is there is a difference here that we have to we we have to acknowledge and we have to you know hopefully um, uh, understand and, and prevent from happening. Wow. Yes, I just finished this book, and I think what you're saying it it talks to he, uh, a lot about history and that this happened in the past. But we're living a completely different world now. World now with uh, with uh, the atomic bombs and stuff. So yeah, it's a, I think your point is it's very well thought that it's different now because it happened in the past. Now the world the world will be completely change if we have a third war not war yeah so uh, i i have uh I, i'm thinking a bit more about the the china's uh, philosophy but also the chinese uh, people you mentioned that there is a disconnect between between you mentioned what you mean the, you uh, the, what the chinese people want or what the chinese uh, government wants so um, well, i want to yeah well, I mean, I think I want... if you live in China, what you recognize is uh, the uni- the schools, all the way from kin- kindergarten to university, the media, um, the government, uh, the the businesses, the banks, everything follows you know one uh, narrative, one line of reasoning. The Chinese Communist Party is most important. It's almost like a religion, and so. Um, if the Chinese people had an opportunity to recognize that there's something different, um, then I think that the, you would begin to see that they don't agree with the Chinese Communist Party, but they don't know that th- their entire life from the time they're born until the time they are di- they die, they're only allowed to hear one message. Uh, and, and they've done a very good job at closing off the society to any other type of message like Korea. Right. You, you, when people come out of North Korea, they're they're brainwashed. They 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 have this idea of the world that's not uh, doesn't uh, um, it doesn't comport with reality. The same 
when you when you get people that come from China, they think a certain way and they um, they have a very hard time escaping that reality because they've been conditioned in this way. And so when I say the Chinese Communist Party, the Chinese Communist Party have total control, narrative control over the uh, the Chinese people. And so it's hard to to really um, say that because when they when I was in China, they said, oh, we can't have democracy. Chinese people can't have democracy. They can't. It, it, it would be um, it would be total chaos if China had democracy. And every single person I, I said I met said this. And, you know, at the time I thought, OK, well, you know, this is the way they think. But then as you start to understand how their system works and, and then you realize, OK, Taiwan is 70 miles off the coast. They've got a perfectly thriving democracy. They're Chinese people. So how can those Chinese people have democracy and these Chinese people can't? It's because what they're taught is what they're told is what they, you know, what they're taught to believe. And so I think, you know, um, that is what I mean when I, when I say the Chinese Communist Party tries to control the, what it means to be Chinese. You know, they dictate what it means to be Chinese. I think if the Chinese people could have their own voice, that they may have some uh, certainly different thoughts about what it means to be Chinese. When I was in China, I was speaking with some younger people and they were a bit more understanding that there is something going on here. So do you think maybe in the future this will change? I think it's getting worse. I think it's getting so bad. I mean, uh, when I lived there um, the second time uh, in 2017, um, they have so much control over the population using cameras uh, using, um, you know, there's the fact that they can collect all the, 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 the information from their phones. They do all their financial transactions with their phones. It's all digital. I think it's becoming much, much harder for, um, them to the Chinese people to escape the government watching what they do and then punishing them if they don't do the right thing. And so social credit score, all of that, I think it's getting far more easier for the government to control um, at the individual level, which is one of the reasons why I think it's so important in a free society that we have a separation between um, the data that the government has con control of about you. Um, why I think the, the things that we did after 9-11 in terms of spying on our own citizens is so bad and it's bad for any democracy. We, we should stop that. And I think uh, I think every citizen and a basic human right has the ability or should have the ability to control their data, to encrypt that data, to make sure that only they have access to the data. I think that is a fundamental human right. And, uh, and if we don't accept that, if we don't embrace that, then I think we're going to lose the benefits that um, of, of modernity as at least in a way that Western civilization has enjoyed it. Can you describe a bit the picture of what the, uh was the benefit for the government to see all the data and influence the data uh, and act according to the data in the last couple of years after 9-11? Yeah, I mean, you, you, you saw it. I mean, they were able to, like if they said, okay, um, you can't, um, you can't uh, go out, right? It's curfew. Okay, I see this person going out. Let's go arrest him. I mean, you know, having that ability to know what people are doing um, to to see that and have that data accessible, I think is you know, 
it then it, it turns into, okay, I'm going to use that data for something. I'm going to use it to control um, the, the population. And then, you know, as we've seen, uh, the social media, we begin to say, okay, um, you know, and even now, it's crazy. The New York Times was putting pressure on the White House to, to censor data, you know, to, to tell Facebook to censor, um, to censor data, to tell Twitter to censor data. And so there's just, as you have data um, and, and the ability to understand what people are doing, this tendency to want to use that and con- to control the population is just, I think, overwhelming. It, it, is, it is exactly what the founding fathers said when they created our constitutional republic, is that if somebody has the ability to get power over something, then they will absolutely uh, attempt to do so. And that's what's happening. Oh my God! So you believe that power corrupts and is inevitable? It is. It, I think it's. I think it's a fa- It's a human failing. It is. It is inevitable for any human to want to control um, their environment, and is, to the extent that they have the ability to, that then they will. Wow. So, so about the government role, so you believe the government role should be minimalistic, not doing everything and controlling and all this stuff. Just be, but also before you said that they need to be prosperous and control. So I'm not sure where you draw the lines. Yeah, I think that, I think the, um, I think for the most part, the government exists to, to make sure that we don't go to the extremes companies don't become monopolistic. Um, people don't prey on other people. Um, you know, um, your borders don't become invaded. I think, you know, as long as people are operating in, in certain, uh, in certain kind of, um, you know, where they're not, you know, we all, we often say, you know, my, my, um, my rights extend uh, from my fist to your nose, right? So as long as I'm not harming you, then I should be able to do, you know, the things that I want to do. And I think generally the government exists to where people step outside of those bounds, where I start taking advantage of you, then the government should be there to, to make sure that that's not happening. And, and whether that be individuals, whether it be um, organizations, whether it be an organization to an individual or the government to the individual, I think the you know there should be there should be limits, and that's why government exists to to prevent you know the the excursion from those limits. Do you think uh, the president has power? Because a lot of times I heard that uh, maybe especially in the United States is like you are driving a huge uh, boat, but you have a small uh, rudder, small thing. Yes, yeah, yeah. I think the president has enormous ability to, um, you know, they, they, they talk about the bully pulpit, the ability to uh, use uh, his, his or her voice to um, set the direction of the country. Um, they, own, they run the executive branch. The executive branch is the largest organization in the United States. So I think they have enormous power. Um, but I think that power, um, over and over the years, I think what's happened is, the legislative branch and the judicial branch have not, you know, uh, put limits on that power. So, you know, over time, the executive government has taken more and more and more prerogative 
uh, in terms of its ability to assert um, control over the population. And I think the, it, it's, it's gotten out of, a little bit out of control. And so I think, you know, the, the legislative branch and the judicial branch have an obligation to, um, to limit the, the power of the executive branch. And, um, and so, you know, I hope that they begin to do that. So I assume for your job, you studied a lot of history. And uh, what are some of the leaders you think of the past worth studying for young people like me? Uh, so George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, uh, Ulysses Grant, uh, I think are uh, some of the some of the leaders that I think were um, exceptional. You know, Washington, um, you know, many wanted him to be a king and he absolutely refused. Um, and he went back to, you know, to, to, on, to his farm. He believed in this idea of a republic. I think um, Lincoln, um, you know, believed in the republic as well and, and, and really, you know, suffered as a result and, and, uh, and ultimately gave up his life for that. And I think Grant, um, in his own right, he agreed with Lincoln and the, the importance of not punishing the South to um, get reconciliation to to really build build the United States to make it better, and I think um, so. I think you know from you know in terms of presidents, those are the ones I would look at. In terms of leaders of the United States, I think a great a leader of, in, in the United States was Martin Luther King Jr. Just um, this 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 great personality that rose above um, you know his circumstance and really um, you know spoke to uh, many generations of Americans on the importance of you know, how we treat each other. And so, you know, that would be another one that I, and then of course, Christ is another one that I, that I think of. And certainly when I look at the, the writings and uh, the, in the sayings of Christ, you see um, real wisdom uh, in terms of how we should treat each other and how we should, you know, the types of lives we should live. So these are the, these are the, 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 the people I look to, to, to kind of as leaders and, and, um, and, uh, and really example setters for how we should live our lives. I ask every person in this podcast one question. If I give you $1 trillion, how do you use it to impact the world in a good way? Well, you know, I think what I've learned over the last um, 10 years is I would um, I would begin to work on the technology that um, that surrounds us and to ensure that um, people's lives are maintained uh, privately, that they're able to control their data um, and that they have the ability to um, to live a life independent, so independent of influence from any corporation or, or, or government. Um, I think that would restore the balance between, I would use, you know, every cent of that to restore the balance between um, individual citizens and the government or corporations and, and make sure that um, we can, we can get back to the true ideals of, of the American experiment. So how, so you are going to build a company that uh, helps uh, people control their data. This is what you are going to do with the one trillion dollar. That that's my that's my goal to build technology that pro that promotes the, the data privacy and data data sovereignty. And this is the company that you already have and started, right? 
That's what I'm working on. Yes. Uh, can you give us a, a bit more on how you are doing that or no? Well, you know, I think the, the way that we look at the world is um, today, uh, data, um, particularly um, you know, computing, is highly centralized. Um, our networks are highly centralized, and we believe in highly resilient, highly decentralized systems. And so um, our com company is focused on uh, ensuring that you have connectivity no matter what happens, but ensuring that connectivity is um, you, you know, gives you the power to control, you know, your information. And so, um, you know, we really have two um, uh, areas of growth, you know, or, or, or kind of what I would call phases. We have to deploy the technology, which is what we're working on now is to work with uh, companies and governments and organizations that need secure, resilient uh, data. And then Uh, as we become deployed, the ability to work with, you know, even individuals to enable them to protect themselves um, from from uh, the, the misuse of their data, I think will be the second phase of growth. But um, as with any technology, we it has to get out there. If it's not out there, it's very hard for us to be successful. And so um, and so we believe that resiliency and security is the reason uh, that we uh, that this technology uh, should be there. And. And why resiliency? Well, you know, it used to be that we had a number of ways for um, for announcing uh, that we had maybe a, a natural disaster or some kind of military attack. We had um, something called a giant voice loudspeakers that said, you know, that told people that something was happening and, and, and gave them um, and let them know what to do. Then we had radio. Uh, radio was a way that we, uh, you know, let people know that where there was problems today, it's the, the cell phone. Um, and unfortunately, uh, cell networks are not built to be resilient or survivable. They're, they're very fragile. Um, there's many ways that they can go, um, they can go down. Uh, we saw that, um, there was a bombing at the AT&T switching center in Nashville, Tennessee, two Christmases ago that took out. Uh, communications for several weeks for for a lot of people, thousands of people, and so we believe that you know this 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 ability to communicate is so vital to humanity that that should be uh, survivable. And the only way to really make it survivable is to make it decentralized. Uh, highly centralized systems are very easy to attack and very easy to um, to have an issue that basically um, makes them uh, not work. And so, and so that's our focus. And then, you know, as we begin to um, make our society more resilient and more secure, then we can begin to offer the ability to disintermediate this ability to collect data on people. And I think that's the second phase that we really want to focus on. And how do we, how do we protect people's um, privacy? How do we ensure that Um, you know, those cameras aren't, uh, aren't, aren't being used to control them, but rather um, are used to maybe, maybe protect them, uh, but not without re by revealing who they are or what they're doing in ways that uh, are counter to their, to their privacy and, uh, and data sovereignty. So, uh, so now with the artificial intelligence rise of all these uh, articles and everyone talking about it what what is your take on the, on this topic 
Well, I think artificial intelligence is in, in, incredibly uh, dangerous if not um, if not properly controlled and regulated. You know, it's uh, I think uh, I agree with Elon Musk on this, and I think that um, you know artificial intelligence can be a wonderful tool for mankind. It helps you uh, identify cancer or um, helps you improve uh, transportation, uh, make things more efficient, make your power more efficient, um, help, you know, you know, solve problems that, that, you know, humanity has struggled to solve. Um, but at the same time, I think it can be, it can be, um, it, it can get to a point where it's, it um, surpasses mankind's ability to understand or control, and then it can become very, very dangerous. And, and I think, uh, intelligence uh, in the wrong hands and certainly uh, at the wrong level can can be uh, in- incredibly oppressive. So do you think AI is the maybe the weapon that will give a bit of advantage in your United States in comparison to China? Well, I, I think that since there are no, um, since there are um, you know, a lot less kind of controls, I think, in, in terms of how China might use artificial intelligence. I think they have the advantage, um, um, but that also could end up backfiring on, on the Chinese Communist Party. Could Who knows? It could lead to their downfall. You know, they embrace artificial intelligence. They think it's going to give it advantage, give them an advantage over the United States or o- certainly over their own people. And then who knows, maybe it turns on them. So I don't know. I don't know what the, it's kind of hard, you know, Ray Kurzweil, who, who writes the, the, the singularity is near. Um, he talks about the event horizon, you know, where it's impossible for humanity to see past the point where an artificial intelligence system uh, has general intelligence that's better than a human. At that point, we cease to be able to see uh, the outcome of the future because we can't contemplate how that intelligence, what that intelligence may create. And that's the point where I think we have a very, very difficult time understanding what happens next. And, and so, um, and so I think it, 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 it does come with some kind of uh, threat to uh, humanity, at least what we know of it. So you don't think the United States has advantage with artificial intelligence? You think Not China today, has... no. No, I think China does, yeah. Wow. <laughs> Another advantage that China has, <laughs> as you're describing. <laughs> so you, you mentioned uh, about the data sto- storage. You mentioned about the, uh, uh, about the, so all this, uh, are you using uh, artificial intelligence or uh, do you think artificial intelligence is going to be used in the specific area that you are describing for data in, uh, encryption and all yeah, this Yeah, certainly. I mean, we, our, our intent is to use it to be more resilient, more secure, more efficient. Uh, and then also, you know, the, the types of applications that are designed to run on our infrastructure is more aligned with ap- artificial intelligence. So, um, you know, just one basic example um, you know, if you're if you're looking, uh, if you're monitoring, you know, something uh, and you are looking for anomalies, you know, most of your data is benign. You may have a couple of uh, things that happen. Say, you know, it's livestock and you've got uh, you've got 100 cows 
uh, in your pasture and two of them are sick. Uh, the data you care about is on those two. You don't care about the 98. And so um, today, all that data gets sent back to a centralized data center to process. I think when what you're going to start to see is the ability to process that at the edge, uh, identify what data you want, identify what data you don't need, discard the data you don't need, and then keep the data that you want. And that is going to slowly uh, make you more efficient, make, allow you to make better decisions. It's certainly going to reduce uh, the amount of power uh, and energy we expend on processing. So um, by making us more efficient and more capable, not only are you going to make those jobs uh, better outcomes, but the amount of energy that you need to uh, expend, you know, we, these, these, these hyperscale data centers that take enormous amounts of water, they take enormous amounts of power to make them operate. So by creating um, these nodes that exist much closer to where the work needs to get done and allow that work to be done, um, then you start to see, uh, you know, you're using less energy. That's better for the environment overall. So it, it is generally, you know, we believe is going to be more environmentally friendly. It's going to allow us to have better outcomes faster. It's going to reduce the amount of data that we collect and store. So, you know, this is the type of thing that I think, you know, where artificial intelligence can really make a difference um, in, in how we think about the world as it exists today. You know, we've been very, uh, you know, we've been very focused on the smartphone as the, um, as the you know, the, 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 the kind of the end all be all of our current age. I think in the, in the coming age, it's not going to, it's going to be a le lot less about the smartphone and a lot more about individual sensors and devices that are allowing us to collect data on things and then be able to, you know, do things and, 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 and accomplish things that we can't do today. Um, I heard again, uh, Elon Musk talking that as time progress, data centers become more and more and more of importance because it's like when artificial intelligence store all their data somewhere and all this stuff. So to, what do you have any thoughts on how do we prevent uh, how do, with decentralization? How do we make data centers more uh, about because you mentioned decentralization and data and data centers? Uh, I was curious to hear if you, what's your thoughts about that. Yeah, I think you know um, if you think about the world um, just from a, the perspective of water, you have tributaries that, that lead into rivers, that lead into or streams, lead into rivers, lead into the ocean. Uh, I think th these large data centers represent the ocean, and I think that um, that there is there is something to be said for being able to um, uh, deal with data when it's in the tributary and not you know have to wait till the time it gets to the ocean. I'm not saying that data centers aren't um, going to continue to re remain relevant and important. I think that there is um, there is a combination. There is, um, uh, you know, uh, certainly uh, a need for being able to process uh, at the edge. Uh, and then I think there's a, an importance for a data center. And so I think they, they work together um, and they overall, they make the system more efficient and, and, and provide better outcomes. Uh, I don't think it's going to replace. I don't think it's one or the other. I think it's, um, it's, it's actually instead of one plus one equals two, I think one plus one equals three. You actually have a better system. That's a hybrid between centralized and decentralized. 
Uh, I'm very curious on how all this uh, experience that you had in the army, being an uh, advisor for Chinese relationship in, in the government, apply to you, all the skills that you learn apply to you on leadership and your, starting your company now. Well, I think um, <laughs> uh, what I would say is that um, it's been very difficult for me to adjust to uh, this this different um, system, different you know circumstances, different situations, different relationships. I think um, it uh, you know I think one of the things that uh, that I've learned over the years is that you have to be persistent. You can't give up. Um, sometimes uh, you you know I remember reading something that said you know the the, the the startup that that succeeds is the startup that doesn't fail. Well, not failing actually um, is um, is is something that you you know it comes from um, being persistent about not not giving up, not quitting. And I think that is a lot of times people um, and, and certainly I, I would say this and this is the case in business. Uh, it can be very very um, you know lonely. It can be very very hard. Uh, it, it, um, it, it is, it is, I certainly I've worked harder, um, than I've ever worked before in, in the military and I worked hard in the military. So, um, and so I've had to learn a lot of lessons. Um, and I think, you know, the, 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 the main lesson is be persistent, um, be true to what you believe. Um, don't, don't, um, people will try to change try to change you and say, Hey, this is not right. Or that's not right. But, it, but you have to stay convicted and you have to, you have to continue to persist. And, um, you know, I think that that's a, that's a lesson that, that, um, I think is, is good for, for anybody in, in, in whatever they're doing is, is just this idea that you, every single day you get up and you go after it again and you don't, you don't give up, you don't quit. And, uh, um, it's not always going to work out the way you want, but, but certainly, um, you can't, you can't give up. So it was a difficult transition to, from the public sector to the private sector. Oh, absolutely. And I, I would say that, um, you know, in, initially when I was thinking, you know, I could get out and do this business thing. Um, <laughs> I had a, um, I, I was not, I was not as prepared as I thought I, uh, as I was going to be. Um, uh, it, you know, you, you have to, when you, when you are in a career, you know, over year, the years, do you, um, you gather, um, you know, what I call your clue, your clue bag, you fill up your clue bag, you, you learn, you know, what you, you, you learn these lessons and then you're, you know, as you become, you know, more and more experienced, you're able to make decisions a lot easier and they're good decisions. Um, and then you, you go to a completely different area. You have nothing in your clue bag. And so the way you fill up your clue bag is by making mistakes and learning from them. And, that, and unfortunately, there's no other way to do it. So this experience, in a way, humbled you, as I understand, again. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So I, I see, uh, I, I was curious, in what do you find in going to all these podcasts because over the years, it's been a lot of years that you are going and uh, presenting your message. Why, why you find this interesting? 
it's not that it's interesting. It's I owe an obligation to my country, to the Constitution, to um, to uh, Western liberal democracy. I think it's important that it survives. I think it's important that we continue to um, advocate for a meritoc- meritocratic system. Um, that we advocate for you know these things that we that so many people died to preserve and protect and to grow and to nurture. And so I don't do this, you know, because it's uh, because of me. I do it as a way of giving back. I've been so blessed in this country. And, um, and, and I owe my kids, I owe my grandkids, I owe my fellow citizens, um, you know, for that, for, for, for having to grow, or being able to grow up in the system. And I want to give back. And I see a threat. I see a threat to our society. I see a, um, a, a general lack of uh, willingness to fight for this. And I think it's good. I think it's a good, it's not the best system. And I think, uh, and I do think it has problems, but, um, but, I'm, but I think it's something that, that we should be fighting for a lot harder than we've been fighting for. And so I do it because um, I think it's important. That's, that's, that's the reason I do it. I, I, um, I do it even when I'm tired and, and, and don't, don't feel like doing it because I think it's, I think it's something that we have to do if we, um, if, if we, um, if this, this type of dream, uh, that is America and, and these types, this living, this type of life is going to survive. And last question, what do you want to leave behind in this world? I've- um, I want to, I want to leave behind, um, my kids, um, and that they, um, that they hold allegiance to the same type of ideals that, that I, I grew up with. And, and I hope if you know, if they uh, have kids, uh, that they will leave behind the same type of ideals. And I think that's the only thing that anybody can get, then they can ex- expect to have, um, that's, uh, is to leave behind um, you know, citizens, good citizens that, that, that seek to um, make good in the world. And, and, uh, and hopefully that will be the case. Oh my God. I want to really express my gratitude and thank you for everyone that was watching all the way through. We love you. And thank you for spending your time for your beliefs. Uh, and yeah, I, I feel that all the, uh, is all the stuff that you shared is honest, that your intentions are honest for, because you believe that you're helping uh, with your, the, your actions. So I really feel the honesty in your words. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me.